0: Welcome to where two guys tell you about the books they're reading. I'm Liv Nudden,
1: And I'm Rob Olson. You may be thinking to yourself, man, didn't they just post an episode like 12 hours ago? Yeah, we basically did. Uh, But we're back to uh, do a review for you, which is the the actual episode we had planned for this week. And that is of the book. I'm going to hold it in front of me and read it so I don't say it wrong. (laughs) The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires by Grady Hendrix. And uh, this is his bio. Award-winning author Grady Hendricks has written about the Confederate flag for Playboy magazine, covered machine gun collector conventions, and scripted award shows for Chinese television. His novels include Horror Store, About a Haunted Ikea, My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is basically Beaches meets The Exorcist, and We Sold Our Souls, a heavy metal horror epic out now from Quirk Books. He's also the author of paperbacks from hell, a history of the horror paperback boom of the seventies and eighties and the movie Mohawk, a horror flick about the war of 1812 and the upcoming film satanic panic, which, uh, this is a little bit out of date because satanic panic came out about a year ago, but, uh, there's the bio for you.
0: I, uh, it's interesting because you said uh, that uh, Beaches meets The Exorcist. And I was like, I feel like I just read something really similar. And that's because it's in the synopsis for this. So, oh, there you go. <laughs> Steel Magnolias meets Dracula in this 90 set novel about a woman's book club that must do battle with a mysterious newcomer to their small southern town. Perfect for murderinos and fans of Stephen King. Patricia Campbell's life has never felt smaller. Her husband is a workaholic. Her teenage kids have their own lives. Her senile mother-in-law needs constant care. She's always a step behind on her endless to-do list. The only thing keeping her sane is her book club, a close-knit group of Charleston women united by their love of true crime. At these meetings, they're as likely a talk about the Manson family as they are about their own families. One evening after book club, Patricia's viciously attacked by an elderly a neighbor bringing the neighbor's handsome nephew james harris into her life james is well traveled and well read and he makes patricia feel things she hasn't felt in years but when children on the other side of town go missing their deaths written off by local police patricia has reason to believe james harris is more of a bundy than a brad pitt the real problem james is a monster of a different kind and patricia has already invited him in little by little james will insinuate himself into patricia's life and try to take everything she took for granted including the book club but she won't surrender without a fight in this blood soaked tale of neighborly kindness gone wrong.
1: That was a big one. Um, but I will say I'm pretty happy with that synopsis. I feel like it sets the right tone for, for what happens in the book. Um, one of the things I want to start out before we, uh, we dive into what the story is. I mentioned it when we were talking in earlier episodes that we were going to be doing this book um, that Grady in his author's note uh Talked a little bit about why he wanted to do uh, this particular book, and he referenced uh, his book, My Best Friend's Exorcism, which is about two teenagers in Charleston, South Carolina, in 1988, in the height of the Satanic Panic, and um, they become. I'm reading off of the author's note. Become convinced that one of them is possessed by Satan. And consequently, things go poorly. Um, he decided that the this was written from the point of view of the teenagers, but he thought that there should be a book from the point of view of the moms, basically, and like the hopelessness you feel, like when your children or family are in danger and so that was what inspired this book, um, which I thought was was neat i don't think that I would ever have thought to do that, so I thought it was worth mentioning.
0: Yeah, I mean, we've reviewed a few vampire books here on the podcast, and I know I've I've read a number. And this seems like the most unlikely um, matchup of <laughs> you know of, of hero and villain, right? So '90s uh, suburban moms, uh, but that's that's what it is. And and I guess we'll we'll see how we felt about it through the course of this review. So it all kicks off with Patricia Campbell, who's our protagonist. Um, she winds up, uh, joining, uh, she's part of a book club and nobody's happy with this book club. They're reading really kind of like hoity-toity books. And this particular time, she just didn't have a chance to read the book, but she was leading the discussion. So clearly it's evident pretty early on that she didn't read the book. So she's kind of, you know, frowned upon by the woman who runs the book club and she finds out that nobody else in the book club is happy with the book club. Like they want something to do. They want to read books, but they don't want to read all these like kind of highbrow intellectual books. They all kind of want to read like down and dirty, like true crime stuff. So they start their own book club. And that's where things kick off.
1: Yeah. And so I think one of the cool things that that this establishes right up front is... Uh... I don't know, because this takes place in the early 90s and it's a bunch of housewives. So my, I don't have a lot of upfront knowledge of 90s housewives outside of what I watch on those like tubes websites. Um, but uh, it establishes like the stakes of uh, social pressure, almost very close up front, because um, not only does it show you what like the life of the average housewife in this book is like with all of the things they do around the house and supporting making sure the kids are doing what they're doing and all that stuff. Um, there's this social pressure to be a certain way and act a certain way and do specific things. And that is, is established very strongly in this opening part by showing how high stakes <laughs> not reading a book for a book club is in this book. So, um, uh, well done to kind of get that kicked off. I thinking about,
0: um, like, I, I don't know what women in the 90s were reading, but I, I don't think that's an illogical jump because one of the top trending things on Netflix is always true crime documentaries. And apparently, the majority of viewers for that are women. Mm-hmm. So I guess pre-NET, you wouldn't have had that same outlet. Like, you could watch 2020 every friday night i think is when that's on right but if you wanted that kind of stuff i'm thinking books were probably the only real way to get it kind of on demand in the early 90s so i I, again that rang a little true for me when i thought about it that way
1: for sure um so after the after the failure of the initial book club um the book just kind of rolls into everyday life for uh, Patricia is our protagonist in this book, Patricia Campbell. Um, she has, um, her family is her husband, Carter, who is a psychiatrist, I believe, um, or psychologist. I don't remember which is which, uh, and then a son named blue and a daughter named Corey. And as it mentioned in the synopsis, she also has, um, full time in the beginning of the book, um, Carter's mom, who's called Miss Mary is being taken care of kind of in shifts throughout like uh, Carter and his, his other relatives and basically everybody bails uh, on Miss Mary. So she ends up having to stay with the Campbells full time. And so at the very beginning of the book, it goes from, Oh, maybe we're going to get some relief from having to care for Miss Mary to, okay, she's, she's with us for the long haul. Um, so the beginning of the book, is getting an idea of what the day-to-day life for the Campbell's
0: is like. And then, uh, because it's mentioned in the synopsis, we'll say pretty early on, Patricia is attacked by a neighbor lady who, um, I don't know that we're giving too much away by saying, you know, acts rabidly and attacks her and tries to bite her. Because <laughs> um, it's, you know, a Dracula <laughs> reference in the... In the in the synopsis. So um, so while we're dealing with that, that's how we're introduced to James Harris. So the the woman um, is subdued and then winds up dying in the hospital the next day or a couple of days later. And, and Patricia actually feels bad about this because, you know, she had the encounter with the woman, although she clearly wasn't the cause of death. She feels bad and she hears that the grandnephew is, is living at that house. So she stops over to see him. Um, but what she finds is, you know, a, a tad unusual when she gets there.
1: Yeah, she thinks he's dead. She goes, uh, she knocks, um, no one answers. She kind of peeks her head inside, still no response. Then she ends up just kind of like barging in and walking around trying to find someone. And he's laying on a bed and it looks like he's dead. And so she freaks out. And being someone who is a nurse, who uh, stopped nursing to be basically a housewife, um, she goes into kind of medical support mode, tries to retes- resuscitate the dude. <laughs> and then he wakes up and he's like, what the fuck's going on here? Uh, and she's terribly apologetic. And um, it's it's interesting because once things calm down and they just start having a conversation, um, it turns very quickly to uh, this guy came to take care of his great aunt when she died. He has all of these things that he has to do and he's obviously unqualified or unprepared to take care of them. And it's simple stuff like changing the bills into his name and stuff. So as like the, like the ultimate housewife she kicks into, she feels guilty because of all like, you know um, she had an interaction with the, the great, the great aunt right before she died. She feels like responsible to help, this guy get back on his feet and figure these things out. So she starts helping him do stuff.
0: And he becomes um, more a part of her life over the course of this. So like he comes over to her house and, you know, gets himself invited in for dessert and then shows up for meals and and, and whatnot and and starts to ingrain himself, not in just into her life, but into the lives of the the families of these women from the book club. So, you know, I'll, I'll kind of... Go over it pretty quickly now, maybe even out of a little out of order, but he winds up becoming valuable in some way to all the men in the family. So he's got some money and he's got some ideas, and there's an investment opportunity, and that's the kind of stuff. So he winds up kind of ingratiating himself into their lives o- over the course of you know the the first you know thirty percent of this book.
1: I want to take a little time to talk about Miss Mary because while all this wonderful good stuff is going on and everybody is is welcoming this guy as he becomes more and more valuable to them, Miss Mary, who has been just kind of a grumpy, pissed-off old woman who needs care all the time, um, is saying these things that don't make much sense. Like, she recognizes him, that, she killed, that he killed her husband, and um, she keeps saying, I have a photograph, I have a photograph. And she has a very negative reaction to this dude, and everybody just writes it off as, oh, Miss Mary's acting crazy. So uh, that's an element of this book that is. Um, I found it kind of entertaining because it's 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 probably pretty true to life. And what I've seen is once you get to a certain age, people just stop taking you as seriously. So even mm-hmm. if you are right about something, um, it's completely overlooked. And so uh, it was entertaining that I guess not entertaining because it's obviously very sad, but. Um, I also like the fact that that was so, so portrayed so well. That's how Rob's me. All the time. Oh my God. (laughs) At
0: (laughs) at a certain age, everything I say to him, he's like, no, no, that's not, that's not yet.
1: Oh, that's just Livius being Livius. (laughs) That's right. Um,
0: Yeah, there's, there's that. um, and. The other thing that we learn about is through the course of of several of these book club meetings and and interactions between the women who, you know, who become friends and check in on one another and help out when another one's in need is like, I feel like he consciously tried to, to check some boxes of maybe different, I don't want to say stereotypes, but basically housewife stereotypes, right? So you've got the super religious woman who is sneaking around to the Book clubs and tells her husband it's Bible study because he mm-hmm. wouldn't be accepting of the type of, you know, air quotes here, trash that they're reading. Yeah, it's true crime stuff. You've got the the lady whose house and family are in perfect order and she'll do, you know, basically anything to at least keep up those appearances. You've got the one woman that's like, ah, fuck it, you know, just drink some wine and it's hard <laughs> to keep up with the shit you'll get around to. it. You know what I mean? So there's it, it's really great because he encompasses all these different women and their friendships, um, and how they take care of one another. Like it's, it's kind of heartwarming in parts that way, while this kind of far more sinister story is developing. And I I guess I'll go into that a little bit. Um, the Campbell's hire a, uh, a lady to help with uh, Mrs. Green, who's a caretaker who helps with Miss Mary and then helps out around the house and stuff too. She lives on the other side of the tr- tracks in the um, not so great part of town, and over there, um, there have been some some terrible things happening. Some children um, have either gone missing, or been been hurt, or hurt themselves over the course uh, of the last few months. And, uh, you know, it's not not too much of a stretch for us the way the book is set up. Like we kind of understand immediately who's what's happening and that it's James Harris. But the the women of the town who we follow don't necessarily uh, get that right away.
1: This is where the the idea of um, if we ignore it, it'll go away kind of attitude um, steps up a little bit. The the women, since it's not happening to them in their perfect little neighborhood um it's almost like it's not happening to the point where when they learn about these things uh (laughs) one of the characters kitty uh i believe is kitty said something to the the effect of i didn't see that in the newspaper and these kids are actually like you know in danger or dying or whatever and she's arguing with the woman who's telling her that because she didn't read about it in the newspaper as if like it doesn't exist if you know, it wasn't presented to them the way that they expect information to be presented. So there's very much like, uh, um, like if it's not in our backyard, we're not going to worry about it. Attitude, in general, for these ladies, and that's kind of one of the, the I guess problem issues that that happens uh, with uh, what's going on is the uh, people's willingness just to overlook something if it's not having a negative effect directly on them.
0: Yeah, which I don't think is a, a, a 90s thing necessarily. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's the way it typically goes. That's kind of that's you're, me right now. Yeah, exactly. There <laughs> you go. I didn't want to, I didn't, I already called you out for your ageism against <laughs> other podcast <laughs> hosts, but I didn't want to call you out on that too. Yeah, and the rest of the story is obviously about kind of the escalation of things happening in, in Patricia's life and, and the other people in town. Where this book shines is the the topics it touches on, right? So there's there's a couple of things. There's like husband wife relationships. There's this um, kind of class division that Rob talked about. I think is probably mm-hmm. a fair way to put it, right? So you've got rich people, poor people. And in, in this particular book, it's really like fairly well to do white people, and then poor black people um, that are the the victims um, by and large of of the the atrocities committed by a fucking vampire. <laughs> um, but that's that's where it really um, shines, I think, is kind of drawing these characters and and these these types of characters, like giving you a glimpse of their lives, um, not just as individual characters and not just members of one particular group, but like I said, kind of a breakdown of their um, their women, their housewives, their you know, I don't want to say affluent necessarily, but but they're they're pretty well off in, in all the different categories that they fit in, in drawing you a picture of this life while fucking vampires
1: running around the neighborhood. Totally agree. Um, And it opened a door for just um, just a unique take on, I guess, which this is definitely a monster type of story, but one where the stakes are. It's funny because life and death doesn't seem as important as um, having the perfect family. And I thought that was an interesting um, effect that this book had was that people were more concerned about what the neighbors thought of them, you know, than like the fact that, you know, something, you know, a a character in the book dies and uh, because that's just what their priorities are. So it opened doors for uh, just unique situations like that. Now, I've read
0: my share of, of vampire fiction and, and, and various monster books and stuff, but what really struck me in this one, and, and this might, I don't know if it's worthy of conversation or not, but I think this kind of touches a little bit on what you were just saying. Dude, at what point would you legitimately think that you had a vampire living next door to you? Like, what would it take? Because that's one of the things that happens, right? Is Patricia, you know, spoiling too much, you know, as the as the protagonist in this book is the first person that's really clued in to the fact that this guy is something other than human. And she has trouble convincing other people. And, you know, of course, we're reading it. We're like, well, it's clear he's a vampire. But I I started thinking to myself, like, at what point would I legitimately believe if you came to me and said, hey, remember the the weird crying ghost baby that lived next door? I think now a vampire lives there. And I'd be like, sure, a vampire lives there, Rob. Yeah, for sure. You know, I mean, like, how at at what point... (laughs) these characters are just like us like vampires are not part of their world as it's established you know in the beginning so what would it take for jesse to convince you (laughs) that a vampire lives across the hall from him
1: yeah that's tricky i mean i'd have to see um they're hanging the romanian flag somewhere first of all no nothing racism wow yeah just add that to the list (laughs) (laughs) um ageist now i'm racist honestly though like i think that because i was thinking about this because there's a lot of incredulity and like there's a lot of people not trusting the crazy notion that there's a monster living in in the neighborhood and for me it would be when there's no other viable explanation but the problem with that is it's easy to explain away stuff that you don't want to be real. So it's, it's this weird, I I understand the perspective of the people who are like, Oh, that's fucking nuts because it is kind of fucking nuts. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I don't know what it would take for me to, to make that leap. I would, I would hope that my trust in one of my closest friends in the world would help me want to believe him. Um, but, yeah, that's a that's a tr- that's a tricky one.
0: It is. Well, it goes against everything that you're you're taught to believe. And I'm not arguing yeah. the vampires are real or, or, or anything <laughs> like that. But <laughs> I mean, when you think about you and I, I know we had a, like a very brief conversation about conspiracy theories before we got on. Right. So if something just sounds out of the ordinary, you're like, yeah, that's just made up bullshit. And, and I think that, uh, that and that's the things that that's the real situations that could be motivated differently than you think. But if I straight up told you there was a werewolf in the neighborhood, that's just not a conspiracy theory. That's just like insanity. You know what I mean? It goes further than me saying, well, you know, there's a rich cabal of people, five people controlling the world, which is more believable than there's <laughs> a fucking werewolf living next door. Right. So right. I mean, it's it's a little bit of a tougher, you know, but I think one of the things that Grady did well is, he also gave those characters reason, so um, the 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 men and the women to some extent, like this guy does good things for those families. Like everybody, kind of prospers over the course. I, I guess we should say this book covers a, a period of about four years, give or take. Yep. Um, so over the course of that time, he has um, he has raised all the ships in the neighborhood, right? So uh, along with his. Prosperity. He has brought up these families to um, even more affluence than they had before. So he's also an important part of their everyday life and like that they can afford to send their kids to college or they can afford to upgrade this particular thing or purchase this particular thing, which makes it even harder to believe that he's some kind of, you know, whatever blood sucking fiend.
1: Yeah. Um, and I thought that was a that was a nice approach uh he basically is more of a devil in the in of of temptation uh than a straight monster of horror um and and so he digs himself in 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 a way that yeah it seems almost crazy to go against the guy because all that the average person is seeing is is the positive stuff so i agree i fully agree
0: one other um thing i want to say about this and you know i not interested obviously in spoiling the story for anybody but what i want to say is this book kind of plods along at a good pace and it's i don't know if cute's the right word but it's very readable it's very whatever but when this book decides to go a different direction <laughs> and get dark it gets fucking darker than i i'm pretty sure anything that you and I have read over the course of nine years for this podcast. (laughs) And I I don't want to spoil anything. And we've read gross stuff and and there are some parts that are kind of gross, but I mean, this really goes super, super dark from, um, you know, I know it's a steel magnolias in the, um, synopsis, which I'm not terribly familiar with, but like desperate housewives, like that's desperate housewives is the feel I had for like 70% of this book. Yep. But when it went dark, man, holy shit did this guy go dark.
1: <laughs> the funny thing about that is uh messaging back and forth with Livius, um, and I finished the book before he did. This is this is uh this is what COVID nineteen is doing to us. I'm finishing the book before Livius is on a regular basis now. Um and he was messaging me about this exact topic, <laughs> but I knew where he was in the book, and I was like, Oh fuck, wait till he gets to this thing. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it was pulled off spectacularly, but I mean, <laughs> there, there's a, there's a scene that's, that's really disturbing and gross probably about a third of the way into the book. And again, I'm not going to say what it is, but I was like, Jesus, this is, this, this is pretty hardcore. This is pretty out there. And then it goes like back to normal for like yeah. a really long time and the story's developing, but it's developing it like this, safe pace. Like we know he's a vampire and we know there's no particular danger to any of the, the like main characters right now. You can just feel it in the air. Right. Mm -hmm. But when this thing goes bad, Holy shit.
1: Yeah. It's, um, it's a little stomach turning and uh, yeah. And the thing that I liked about it was that he used those, uh, types of scenes sparingly. Um, so you, you're, you're living that, safe feeling suburban life for most of the book in your brain and these little scenes pop up and you're like i i almost like i had to stop myself from like skimming through parts of it uh, just to get through it because i was like oh like it really like livius was saying this is some of like the grossest stuff that uh that we've probably read yeah, I mean, it's all about,
0: about all I think we can talk about about the story. Um, I'm sure there'll be more to talk about with Grady Hendrix um, on our next episode. So that's my, my um, sly way <laughs> of saying that we have an interview scheduled for a couple days from now that you'll hear sometime later this week. Um, is there anything else you want to touch on from the story before we get into our uh, wrap-ups and ratings?
1: Uh, no, honestly, we're like probably one, like half of a toe over the spoiler line as it is. So I think it's, it makes sense to uh, do wrap ups and I'll get started if that's okay with you. For sure. So I remember, first of all, I want to give props to a friend of the podcast, Jesse Lawrence, who uh, was the one who put, we sold our souls uh, on our radar and we reviewed that and enjoyed it. So then Grady Hendrix was kind of just someone we were looking out for. Um, Because I enjoyed, we sold our souls and actually uh enjoyed the movie Satanic Panic as well which is uh was written by Grady Hendrix. I knew that I was it was he writes the type of stuff that I can expect to enjoy. So I went into this pretty positive. And I'm going to say that having a book that for the majority of it comes from the perspective of housewives sounded like a weird proposition for a you know single dude in his early 40s. I didn't know how I was going to relate to it, but uh, one of the things that I think worked so well with his book was the fact that he made like um, the value of having the perfect, perfect suburban life um, and and the idea of losing that so um, tense and suspenseful that like that was the thriller suspense of it was what was this going to do to everybody's perfect lives more than what is this fucking monster gonna do Um, so he sold it perfectly I don't think he could have actually crafted the plot better than he did and I have to give him so much credit for that because um, I just think he did a great job of turning something that is so foreign to me into something that like I was actually feeling tense about as I read the book. Beyond that, it's just it's just a well written story. It's entertaining. It's got good humor. It's got those scenes like Livius and I were talking about earlier that are gross and and obviously very horror focused that um, work very well. And I, I just think it worked as really well as a book. I scored him pretty high in all of the categories, um, especially characters. I liked his characters a lot. I really enjoyed like the plot that I said, like I said before, and um, overall this comes out to 8.25 stars for me. And man, Grady Hendrix is just one of those authors now that is, is rising the ranks of people that when a new book comes out, I'm just going to be, kind of almost automatically wanting to read it.
0: I interestingly enough, cause I can see Rob's individual scores for, for everything. We both scored, um, the highest in characters. And, um, I took a, a little bit different, um, approach to the characters. I, I think than Rob did. So you talked about, um, kind of suburban life and how important it was to him. What I really liked was kind of the interaction between the characters. And when I say the characters, I actually mean the book club women, um, I felt like it was a well-rounded group that reflected like a, a bunch of different types of you know sub- suburban moms. Um, I really liked the camaraderie and even the infighting um, between them, and I thought he delivered that really well. Which is interesting because I'm reading a book about a vampire, and my favorite thing was like these relationships between these women um, against the backdrop of having a vampire um, threatening to take away everything that you have. Um, I thought it was plotted well. I thought it was an interesting take. Um, you know, this wasn't. A final girl situation, um, which I'm sure has happened in plenty of vampire novels, right? It's this group of women who themselves feel potentially powerless. They don't have a special set of skills, and they have to use what they have at their disposal um, to to combat this this great evil. So, uh, I, I really liked the that whole aesthetic. Um, I liked that a good portion of this book was kind of like lighthearted. And then would go really dark in places and then be kind of lighthearted again and then go really dark in places. So um, overall, I think that what he created here, at least from what I've read uh, other books in this genre, was fairly unique. So um, I really enjoyed the the plot and and the, the the narrative of the book. So I came in a hair under Rob in the aggregate um, for all the scores at uh, 7.75, which averages out to uh, an 8 out of 10, which is pretty goddamn good
1: yeah i'd say that's pretty good yeah uh no spoiler talk for this one i think when spoiler talk is useful is when we we have to try and figure stuff out together and i think this would more just be reacting to some of the stuff that happened so spoiler talk wouldn't be as useful probably for for people and this, there, there this. would just be a lot of, of jesus christ what about <laughs> this fucking thing that happened holy shit this motherfucker why would he do that why did he do that to us? So yeah, like I, I find spoiler talk is the best when we help each other get to a conclusion about something. And I, I don't think there's anything to conclude. We know, we know what we know. It's, it would just be reaction, <laughs> reaction, spit takes. Yeah,
0: sure. Good stuff. I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to more from Grady Hendrix. I, I might try to squeeze in my best friend's exorcist exorcism as a, uh, as a, an off the, off the podcast book this year mm-hmm. as I continue to try to make my way back to the pace of one book per week. Um, can, we, but, uh,
1: can we check in on yeah. that right now? Can we see yeah. how you're doing?
0: Um, <laughs> uh, yes, I am. Um, I'm a little bit ahead of where we talked last time, so I think I knocked off a few more Brian Evanson stories and nine whole chapters in Carpenter's Farm oh. by Josh Mellerman.
1: <laughs> Wait a minute. So I think this is our, what, ninth book of the year? Feels like more than that, man. I got to tell you, this is our ninth book of the year
0: for the podcast.
1: And sure. I think so we're on, 14 weeks into the year.
0: Yep. So on top of that, I have two full books that I have read right. it completely to uh-huh. so put it at eleven. And then, like I said, I'm almost halfway through Evanson. So. Okay, you're doing pretty good. I, I'm, I'm trying to catch up. Look, there there are going to be some gaps coming up, I think, in like June. And that's when I plan on on really putting the pedal to the metal. The problem is, like, we finished this. We're doing this review. <laughs> it's Sunday night. We're recording this, right? Next Sunday night, we're recording another book, The Ancestor, by Danielle. What
1: was her last name, Rob? Trusoni.
0: Trusoni. Um, so I like, I have to get started on that like tomorrow <laughs> or Tuesday at the latest, which is why, like I said, right now I'm on a reading short stories from Evenson cause maybe I can knock out two more before I start that book. Um, cause as everybody knows you're working from home, but you have a little bit of extra time on your hands. Um, currently I am still grinding it out at a, at a job as an essential worker.
1: So, yeah, I don't have essential status. I don't.
0: So, I have, um, I have a, I have a note. That I have to keep in my car in the event that I am uh, stopped by oh. law enforcement. Um, you which have is a permission a very, very slip? likely. Yes. Yeah, I do. Wow. Um, it's totally not likely to happen in, in Illinois because every time I go out, there's still a million cars on the road. So it's yeah. not like anybody is, is actually staying at home other than you. So, uh, but yeah, I was actually <laughs> given a permission <laughs> slip that allows me to travel to and from work um, unaccosted by law
1: enforcement. So oh wow there you you're go. you are essential yeah. if that doesn't make totally you feel essential <laughs> i don't know what would
0: the, the problem with this is that rob knows what i actually do for a living and he's probably thinking like how the fuck did that <laughs> even happen so yeah no, no i'm an essential essential per- person me
1: that's uh that's fantastic man um all right i won't get on you so much about because i know that we're we're doing a pretty break not breakneck pace but i did the math on how many books we've done so far this year and then kind of multiplied it out for the full year. And we're, we're pacing to about 32 books. So that means you only have to do 20 outside
0: the podcast. And that's, that's the plan I think, but we, we are going, I know we had some changes in the schedule, but I think we're going like seven or eight books in a row, which might, might be getting close to our record for, how many books we've reviewed in a row
1: yeah because because like usually what we would do what we so for the listeners you may or may not notice you're getting a lot more episodes than usual and basically what we're doing is because we have a schedule that we're keeping to when we interview one of the authors we're just throwing it in extra because we don't have time to pace things out differently so you're just getting more content instead of us just working at a different pace so it's a lot of work lately i'm gonna say Yeah. And a shit ton of books,
0: a shit ton of books. At some point, (laughs) we'll have to go back and figure out what our longest run was of of weekly book reviews. But I'm telling you, this has got to be coming up on second place, if not first. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Which I'm enjoying it. I'm happy about this.
0: I am, too, because we're actually reading really good stuff, which makes it so much (laughs) easier than Wheel of Meat or Patterson Watch or or any of the other things we've done um, previously. So um, we'll give you a little bit of a preview. I already mentioned The Ancestors next week. The Girl in the Video by Michael uh, Wilson is the following week. The Bank by Bentley Little is coming up. Um, And then uh, 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 Shakespeare for Squirrels. Or devolution. I'm not sure how those two are going to land, but essentially these are all back-to-back weeks. Yeah. Um, so we'll wind up being at like 11 books in a row by the time we're done. And then I'm probably going to need a little bit of a mental break from reading for the podcast. Then I'll just go and read some other shit, some Carlos Lou Ruiz Zafon maybe or something. I don't know.
1: We also have uh, three confirmed uh, interviews coming up as well, as far as I'm aware. So mm-hmm. like, yep. It, it's uh, yeah, this, it's going to be a lot. And then suddenly there's going to be nothing. So when it comes to like the middle of June and we get two interloads in a row, don't come fucking complaining to me because we really front loaded the year and you have nothing to complain about.
0: Correct. So uh, <laughs> in case you missed it, because these games go so far, go back and listen to our Josh Mallerman interview that we did. That was absolutely fantastic. It's 95 minutes. Of us talking with Josh about Carpenter's Farm, uh, Bird Box, Mallory, um, uh, ways to display your horror paperbacks. I mean, there's just a variety <laughs> of great content in there. And then, uh, yeah, come back really soon for our interview with Grady Hendricks, which I imagine will be equally as good.
1: That's right. I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. So come back in a few days for Grady. And um, until then, I'm Rob Olson.
0: And I'm Livius Nedden. Keep reading.